Welcome to No Way Out, the podcast dedicated to helping individuals and teams across all disciplines improve their capacity for free and independent action. Each week, through thoughtful conversation with leading professionals and academics, hosts Mark McGrath and Brian Pontrevera aim to develop and advance John Boyd's ideas. Join us as we explore the theories and concepts that informed Boyd's UDA sketch, their connections to today's emerging human-centered ideas, and how this knowledge can help us comprehend, shape, and adapt to our unfolding reality. So put your children on vibrate, put your phones to bed, and strap in as you are about to get airborne, and we are about to disrupt your OODA loop. So, lo and behold, I put up a post, which I am known to do almost on a daily basis, about John Boyd, either Boyd. directly or indirectly. And here is Quan Collins commenting on John Boyd and liking and showing pictures of the uh, John Boyd books that you have. Um, how did you How did you get into John Boyd and, and, and give us some background on that? Sure. So, I started... Um, I guess it was when I got out of college because I, I hadn't heard about him when I was in college. You know, I was an electrical engineering student and we really didn't talk about OODA loops or anything like that. Um, but I'm sure we did, but it was sort of in the periphery of the whatever we were talking about. Um, so out of college, you know, I uh, started working at the Pentagon and learning about defense acquisition. Mm. And we got lots of training on acquisition and program management and those kinds of things. And Boyd wasn't spoken about directly, but OODA loops were mentioned. And it was weird. It was always like sort of a passing thing. Like, um, here's a methodology that we should know. And I'm like, I was drawn to it because I'm like, wow, why is this not the only thing that we're studying? Because this is <laughs> amazing. And, um, so I'm, I'm, I think inherently I'm just a methodology process girl, you know, and I just, I latched onto that and I'm like, that's, this is, there's something there. And, um, and then every class I took, whether it was about lean management or I got further certified in acquisition and program management or whatever, like Udo was always part of the discussion. And, um, and I think it just became sort of, you know, inherent to how we do things, right? How do we, how do we manage a program? How do we manage a team? How do we make decisions? How do we do whatever? And um, I think uh, when I started becoming an agile practitioner, so I'm also scaled, uh, scaled agile framework version five, whatever program consultant and DevSecOps and all of these things. And all of them really are found like UDA is foundational. So everything that Boyd came up with, I mean, all the ways that we talk about going faster and accelerating and innovating and creating is all tied to what John Boyd came up with. And so I think it all just came together for me in my head, like in the last five years. And I'm like, so there's nothing new under the sun. You know, all these methodologies and everything that we're talking about is not new, mm. uh, but it's, it's reimagining what we do in a new way. And that's innovation. 
And, um, and so I feel, you know, I'm, I feel drawn to all of his work and I, I want to study it more because I've never really studied Boyd. Mm. Um, and I think you sparked all of that with that one post. So that one post really did, uh, now I'm diving deep. I want to do a whole, you know, dissertation on Boyd. I think it was uh, some of the handwritten notes that maybe that I that I posted that he that had, stuff. Um, oh my god, yeah. that's gold! I mean, I had so much fun. I mean, I love that stuff, anyways. Like, um, you know, one of my the early dates with my husband, we would go to old bookstores, and all of those like the handwritten notes. That's like magic, and it's funny because my kids and even my husband freak out when I write in the book. Um, because they're like, you can't write in a book. I'm like, yes, I can. It's my book. You never have to look at it again. But, um, yeah. So when I see that, I just, I in, in, imagine, you know, what he was doing, what he was thinking, you know, how he was like, he got all excited because you can totally see it in the way he writes in the margins. And, um, I, I resonate. I feel like I channel him now. Yeah, it's amazing to to put those things in your hands, uh, particularly say his copy of Clausewitz on War, or I'm trying to think of his copy of War Fighting. I had a, uh, the, uh-huh. the last trip I made, I found his copy of War Fighting, and um, just to see, you know, it's funny about that one. Like Clausewitz, he absolutely drowns in marginalia because he was basically going to war with 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 Clausewitz intellectually. Um. At least that's my that's my my take. That's interesting, yeah. With with war fighting, he didn't he didn't mark it up very much. Right. You know, he he had some pointed comments, um, but they were brief. You know, mm-hmm. and, and 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 they weren't, um, um, you know, compared to a lot of the other books. And when you're in there too, like articles, um, even like Ditto copied. Remember when we were kids, like high school, like those old oh yeah, yeah, yeah. copiers. Yeah, yep. there's there's tons of those types of articles, and they're drowning in his notes. And you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to still understand his highlighting methodology because he would underline words and he would put little X's and little mm-hmm. squares. Like so, it's it's not so and not so intuitive. The other thing that might blow your mind is that you know all of his briefings he he wrote out by hand multiple times. Oh my god! So. I'll have to I'll have to put these up and I'll I'll share them with you. Maybe what I'll do is I'll give I'll send you a Dropbox link so you can go that would through be all amazing. these. Oh my goodness! You, you know his only paper was Destruction and Creation. That that um, his only published work um, from 1976. But when you go in there to the archives, there's probably five, six, seven handwritten versions of it. Like he wow. wrote the whole thing out in hand by hand multiple times. And you know you could you could just imagine him writing these things out and and dwelling on them and, and thinking and, about them and yeah, yeah. that's so cool and getting feedback you know mm-hmm. like he would he would share it with his his inner circle um, and have them do like so Chet Richards for example would 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 contribute to the mathematics or um, Chuck Spinney helped him with the you know, the drafting of the, of the OODA loop. That, that's really amazing to see the various versions of that. This is fascinating. So I read a book, which I don't know if you've read it. It's Farrell uh, on collaborative circles. And hmm. he talks about uh, groups of people throughout time that had this cohort of people like trusted partners that they shared their work with and what they were thinking about. And it hmm. was all about, um, 
So they were rebels. They were innovators. They were sort of not thinking traditionally. And so the mainstream of the time was rejecting them as, as leaders because they were just too far out of the, the bounds. And so they would form these circles. And so examples of that was like Tolkien, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and his what they called the Inklings in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they their writing was way ahead of where everybody was. Right. It was so out there. Fantasy was not a genre. Right. And um, so these the world creations that they were doing was just out of, you know, out of the norm. And so they you know, no one respected that work. And so they mm. formed this group and they would meet at the bar and they would just sit around and talk about their ideas. And there was a whole process associated with this thing, which is what Farrell sort of captures in terms of how this uh, subculture, you know, it's kind of like going to the party and you're bored. So you form the sub party. So they, you know, <laughs> they had this sub party and they would drink and talk and then they would go off and do work and come back and share what they were thinking, what they were doing, get the feedback, go back and incorporate the feedback or argue with each other. They would take these long walks together and all they would do is talk about their ideas. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a lost art. I mean, we don't do this anymore. You know, we have lost the ability to give feedback and disagree with each other and still be friends. Um, you know, this art of civilized discourse has uh, just completely gone. And even, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I think goodness for people like you and, you know, we're able to have discussion online and it's not like an argument, you know, it's not an us versus them kind of thing. We're just sharing intellectual musings about what we think about things and, you know, we either agree, disagree, whatever we learn from it and move on. But, um, that's not the norm anymore, right? You, you see these crazy flame wars on, you know, whatever the topic of the day is. And it's, um, it's sad. It's tragic. Um, so it's so exciting to hear the stories and to share them like that. I, um, I think that's, that's really cool. So I guess I think of the collaborative circles. So like Paul McCartney was a great songwriter, but he's better with John Lennon. Yes. Challenging yes. his assumptions and, yep. and and helping him uh, think things through or changing words or whatever. Yep. I like that a lot. There was a whole there was a whole documentary on that. Did you watch that about the Beatles? Um when they on, were on Disney? To, uh-huh. About Let It Be? Yep. Oh, I watched it twice. It's unbelievable. I mean, that's a, that's a case study in leadership and teams and um, all of that. Like the, just the dialogue that they had about different things that they were doing was very cool. You are listening to No Way Out, sponsored by AGLX. Now, let's get back to building your confidence in complexity. Well, in, in being familiar with them, uh, extremely so, just based off the the, the mother that I, I have yeah, that yeah. Uh, made sure that we knew about the Beatles very young, Um <laughs> You know, we know the finished product so well, and to really dig into that uh, that documentary and see how they're refined. There's that one scene where where Ringo is sitting at the piano, and George is like sitting next to them, and he's helping him write Octopus's Garden. Yeah. And like you're yeah. listening to that, you're like, oh my gosh, oh my that's the, that's the that's the genesis of Octopus's Garden. That's amazing. Amazing. It's so. Um, 
And what you're saying too, about, I, I like that how, you know, it's, I, I have a, a, a friend of mine, he's a, he's a consultant, interesting um, background and he does uh, improv, but we were having a conversation last week and he was talking about how, you know, there's an echo chamber and there's a sounding board. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people reject the sounding board or like where, you know, with a sounding board, I'm getting my assumptions challenged. I'm getting my yep. thoughts challenged and we can do something like that in a, in a safe, in a safe spot where, you know, in an echo chamber, if you and I don't agree, we think the other person shouldn't live, you know, right, that, right. that's insane. That just, that, 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 so. Lincoln, um, so I don't know if you've you know read his biographies, but he also operated that way. And um, so all of his cabinet members, he intentionally selected people that thought differently than him because mm. he wanted everyone to challenge him and make sure that whatever he put out there, whatever speech he wrote uh, was was vetted by the, the opposition. Mm. And I mean, how difficult is that? I mean, he was already challenged in a time where I mean, no one wanted to get behind what he was doing with the slavery and the emancipation and everything. And um, uh, so it's fascinating to read uh, Doris Kern Goodwin. I love her work on, on Lincoln in particular and how, you know, he would just he would push the issue. He would force everybody and it made everyone uncomfortable, right? Cause he's the president. Um, but he wanted to be challenged. He wanted the debate and he would not leave until people pushed him. Um, and it's I like, think like Ray Dalio, you ever read principles by Ray Dalio? That's one no, of his, I haven't. he runs, uh, he runs a hedge fund. Um, and, and that's one of the characteristics of it that you have to, challenge each mm-hmm. other um and if you and if you're not then then you're not doing your you know you're not doing your job right and it, you're, you're you're stymieing if you stymie learning then by by default right adaptation can't occur exactly so exactly. i mean we talk a lot about feedback and mm-hmm. debrief and and psychological safety um yep. where you should be able to have those kinds of conversations with everybody on your team up mm-hmm. down and and laterally where rank and emotion is, is kept outside mm-hmm. and we get to the bottom of things. And I think the other thing too, that, that if you're not doing that, you're not getting as many perspectives as you could right. and back to Boyd, your orientation is going to be off. Exactly. Right? So, so as you shape but observations, back to Boyd, he was yeah. <laughs> that man. I mean, seriously, because intellect, I mean, by training, this was, he, he, wasn't really a classical who you would think would come up with something like that. But um, it's just, it's amazing. Like he was just a natural in, in understanding what needed to get done. I'll, I'll share a story with you about Boyd. There's a couple, there's lots about how his own thinking evolved, but one, one that Ponch talk, likes to talk about a lot is that, you know, Boyd had created the definitive study on air to air attack and dog fighting. Mm-hmm. And, and then when, when he, when he, came up with energy maneuverability theory. This was designed that um, this, or this was an equation or a, a theory that informed um, has forever changed fighter design ever, ever since. And it was actually the, the head of top gun uh, in the Navy oh, wow. that said, all this is good, but you're forgetting about the person in the cockpit. You're right. forgetting about the pilot in the plane. What yep. about the human dimension? And I think that it, Boyd, 
added that. Like he, he didn't just totally he, got it. Yeah, he. I mean, it's yeah, it's magical. Yeah, he he didn't uh, he didn't dismiss it. You know, he didn't mm-hmm. cut that out. He, he gave that some consideration that the human aspect of it, in keeping with his pattern of or his, his order of people, ideas, and things. Mm-hmm. You know, you do have to think about the way someone's trained too. So design is important, and the way the hardware is designed is important. But the person operating it is uh, is is the most important because, as he would tell us, uh, people wage wars, not machines. Yeah, exactly. And they use, use their minds. Exactly. So, do you find so when you talk about Boyd um, with colleagues and, and and peers, and you know, do you find it people get it or are interested in it or dismiss it, or how how, how does that go with with uh, with where you're at now? So. There's pockets, right? I think, you know, I, I have a cohort of friends that get it. And, you know, um, I think you've probably seen most of them in my LinkedIn posts now, anytime I bring it up and they're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Let's talk more about this or whatever. In fact, some colleagues at work, it's, it's almost like we're all looking for each other. Because mm. now I have all these people that are like, oh, I studied OODA loops in this class and I want to talk to you about how we're implementing it on this program. And I'm like, yes, please come. And so now I'm forming a little club, I think, around, you know, uh, this interest. But um, I wouldn't say that it's prolific. You know, mm. I don't I don't think everybody gets it. Um, but it's like anything else where, I mean, inherent in what Boyd is doing and what he created um is innovation. I mean, this is foundational to innovation and how we need to think in order to create new ways of doing things um, and reimagining how we do things and go faster. Mm. And so he just, he, uh, you know, he boiled it down, right? And he, he, he defined that. And what I've been learning, so I, I'm working with um, Greg Larkin. I don't know if, if you follow him mm. on LinkedIn, but he's a, a head of something called Punks and Pinstripes. How exciting hmm. is that name? I love that so much. And um, so he talks about obstructionists. And so when you think about innovation or transformation or anything like that, where it's disrupting the status quo, there are five obstructionists that he talks about. And this doesn't matter in any industry, any anywhere. Um, and the five are, and they could be all in one person sometimes. So, mm. so the first one is a skeptic, right? That's like, eh, you know, I don't get it. I don't like what you're saying. I don't, you know, whatever you're saying, I, I need to be shown, right? You need to show me. And so there's playbooks for each one of these. So I'll tell you the five and then I'll talk about the play for each one. Sure. The second one is cops. The hmm. cops are the regulation people, right? That say, oh, you can't do that because you're going to break every rule and you're going to go to jail. And you're like, sure. Okay. So then we'll talk some more about that. Um, the third one is your traditionalist. We have never done it that way. Never going to happen, right? This is, you know, we've been doing this since Jesus walked the planet and that's the only way we're ever going to do it. Okay. And then we have the fourth one, which is the ter- uh, territorialists. These guys are evil because it's just all about them. This is my territory. This is my sandbox. You can't play in it. Get away. Fine. Uh, And then the fifth one are the capitalists and all they care about is making money. And so they can either be your best friend or your worst enemy Hmm. uh, when we're talking about a change. So there's a play. So the play for skeptics is never pitch the thing. So for that person, never going to talk about Uda or what, 
Boyd is doing or how he thought or anything. What I'm going to pitch is the outcome. Why is what Boyd came up with important and why is Uda important? Because it drives this, derives this outcome and that's the outcome that you care about. So let me do the thing and we'll get to that outcome together. The second one were the cops. So the cops are not wrong, right? There are reasons we need these rules and laws in place. So we need to pull them in and say, okay, you're part of this. Let's do this together. Show me where the boundary is and we're going to design what we're designing together. The third one were the traditionalists, right? I'm never going to, we're never going to do it that way. We've been doing safety, security, airworthiness, all these things for decades. We know how to do it. You don't know what we're doing. Army, we know how to take the hill. No doubt. Mm. Marine Corps, we know how to fight. Yes. Yes, you do. I'm never going to teach you how to do that. However, we can reimagine a little bit some of the things that we are building for you to go faster. <clears throat> so in those cases, I just need to bring friends, right? So if I'm talking to a Marine Corps officer, I'm going to bring somebody that they respect more than likely another Marine. <laughs> that Marine says, oh yeah, I get it. Listen to her. Then all of a sudden I'm in, right? Um, and so you have to bring friends, trusted partners to say, uh, this is why this is an important thing to listen to. The territorialists, those guys, we just have to play the narcissist game and say, yeah, you're right. You're amazing. You're right. Uh, I'm never going to play with you. And then go do it anyways, and then invite them to the party later and say, hey, you want to come check this out? Because this is cool. Um, <clears throat> and then the capitalists, um, as long as you're showing them the money, then they're your best friend. Hmm. Show me the money. Mm -hmm. Jerry Maguire. Absolutely. Also, my name was in that movie. I am the Quan. <laughs> Another great Gen X uh, from the from the Gen X canon. <laughs> so I love these. Uh, I love these breakdowns. Um, you know the territorialist boy. I, as you say that, I, I can name can people from my, those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from my corporate career in asset management. I mean, I, I can think exactly who these people are and they'll stop at nothing and they don't, they don't care what happens they to don't anything. Care. Nope. No. And, and you Mission used the term, aside, this is my boundary. Get out. No, you used the term evil. Um, and I thought that that would be a really good time to pull up from, uh, John Boyd's, uh, discourse on winning and losing. You know, he actually defined evil and corruption. I love it. And, yeah. And, and a lot of people, um, you know, I think when, when you, when you listen to his, uh, his definitions. I don't, I don't, you know, I think when people say evil, um, they're thinking of, you know, they could be the thinking big bad guy. Yeah. Demonic satanic mm -hmm, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think that his definitions of, of evil uh, and corruption are actually pretty fair. Um, let me do just a quick word search, but I'll find them. But he, you know, he, he's, he's talking about something that everybody can relate to. So like when you say these, these territorialists are evil, you know, I, I'm not I'm not picturing somebody standing around a cauldron, you know, with a with a with a crystal ball or, you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned Tolkien earlier. Like, I'm, I'm not, you know, the eye mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're trying to throw the, the, the ring back in the fire. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, let's see here. It's from his. uh And evil. Well, I'll find it. Oh, here we go. Evil occurs when individuals or groups 
embrace codes of conduct or standards of behavior for their own personal well-being and social approval, yet violate those very same codes or standards to undermine the personal well-being and social approval of others. Oh, my God. That's a beautiful definition. So as you're describing those territorialists yes. as evil, yes, in, in, in Boyd terms, that's, that's not a stretch. Like that, that's, mm-hmm. that's not a stretch at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for, for giggles, you know, his, uh, his corruption definition occurs when individuals or groups for their own benefit violate codes of conduct or standards of behavior that they profess or are expected to uphold. Oh, wow. So, so I think that those definitions, and they come from his uh, strategic game of question mark and question mark, which was interaction and isolation. Uh-huh. Um, that those are those are good things to have posted out, so that you when you say yes, and put them everywhere. And, well, and you and as you say, you know, when you're explaining someone that you know, say territorialists, you know, they're evil people, and and and, and you can dispel that. You're not saying they're worshiping you well, know Satan, again, right, the, the devil yeah. right? the devil worshipers right and no, you're, you're, you're simply saying that they're individuals <laughs> who embrace codes of conduct their standards of behavior for their own personal well-being and social approval yet violate those same codes or standards and undermine the personal well-being and social approval of others they're the reasons why we can't have nice things right they're the reasons why we can't move faster in the government and it's mm. it's scary and they they look like I mean, I think at heart, somewhere deep, deep inside, they are probably decent people, mm. but they just can't help themselves, right? They, they don't even realize that they're doing what they're doing. And they, so on the outside, right, uh, people don't see it right away and they trust them. They're trusted leaders in our community, um, but they are not allowing new ideas to flourish because it, it it doesn't align with their objectives. So it seems to me that those would be the hardest, the most challenging to, to breach, so to speak. They're the most to, dangerous of, yeah. you know, for what we're trying to do, which is, you know, protect this nation and go faster. It's, they are the most dangerous in my mind. So let me throw a spin on it. So, you know, I'm, I'm consulting somebody, I'm coaching somebody up and I'm teaching them to be more collaborative and competitive what what edge do I give a company? Do I give a team if they can identify and isolate the territorialists in, in who they're competing against? Do they, are they the most, they might be the hardest to connect with, but are they the most direct to uh, compete against? So we don't want to compete with them. And no, no, I mean, I mean, no. if I'm, a, I'm external, like if I'm uh-huh. an external, if I'm an external competitor. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So you're an external competitor and you know that they have these territorialists in, in, yeah. So that's good. I guess, you know, that, that it's a, because that's a weakness. And especially if they are allowing that territorialist to, to guide their strategy, then you can be sure that there is weakness and that you can crush them. If you know where the jugular is. Yeah, I'm thinking like, you know, if I'm, if I, like, let's say, you know, the benefit of hindsight, which is always 2020. So our, our, our much younger selves were coaching this upstart called Netflix. Oh, yeah. And we see that these quote unquote territorialists are wedded to this retail model of mm-hmm. uh, blockbuster stores. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. they have, 
so many thousands of employees and so many properties and things like that. Mm-hmm. They're not giving that up. Mm-hmm. That, that's their, uh, that's their vulnerability from yep. a, from an external competitive threat. Mm-hmm. Well, and we know so, what happened there, right? So there's so many stories like that, right? With the PC, with IBM and the PC, right? The I, IBM had the PC, <laughs> they created the PC mm. and they, didn't see it as a, as a thing because they were all into mainframes and the big, big iron. And, um, they were like, yeah, that no one, no one is ever going to want a lap, you know, a computer at their desk. Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, come on now. So, um, yeah, we have so many of those examples and, you know, the, the good news is that at the end of the day, um, the territorialists don't win. Right. So internally, then we would say, well, we're just going to do it anyway. And they're either going to come along or they're going to get they're going to get left behind because we need uh, to we need as leaders or we need leaders to recognize when they have that gold in their organization. Right. mm. Where they have the person that is uh, willing to act on the thing that they know and believe. Right. And go and do it. And we call them intrapreneurs. Right. And more than often. Um, they're the ones that get fired because, you know, you're the noisy one. You're the one that's not playing the game. You're not doing the party line stuff. And, you know, they don't get promoted. They don't get the VP title. They don't get any of that recognition, but they do it anyways because they believe, you know, they believe in what they're doing. And so we need leaders to just recognize more when they have that Mm. and to, you know, not to say that you want everybody to be a disruptor because that's not good for business either. But, when you have somebody that's um, that's that motivated and that's that's that inspired, you need to protect them. Interesting. And guide them and mentor them. Yeah, on one hand, I think that territorialists could be quite vulnerable, but on the other hand, I've seen some last decades oh, beyond their uh, last forever. <laughs> because at the end of the day, I mean, they've proven their worth also and their value. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they, they didn't get to the positions that they were in because, you know, they were not good at their job. So, well, well, back to our example, I guess it would be hard to argue, right? If you were Blockbuster and you're the number one video retail place, right. it'd be hard, it'd be hard to argue against those numbers to think that exactly. there was something. Yeah. I mean, that was like a household name. You went to Blockbuster. I remember we would take, you know, the kids when they were little and we were, that was a big day. We went to Blockbuster to pick up the movies we were going to watch. There was a bowl game, the Blockbuster Bowl. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Erica and I would meet, we, she'd finish a shift at the hospital and, you know, we, we would meet at Blockbuster. Yeah. It was date night. That was a date night. (laughs) (laughs) Have you tried to explain that to kids? Oh These my days, God. Yeah. They can't even. They're just oh, like, they... what? Like, that's so weird. You old people. <laughs> yeah. They can't even fathom. So I, I, I love, uh, so we'll look up, uh, Greg Larkin punks and pinstripes again. He's I guess from, a magical human. You're going to love him. I think like, I think of punks and pinstripes. I think of like the clash meets Gordon Gecko. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so when you Google Quan Collins and Axiant on uh, on Google, uh, there's a great article that comes up from Auburn University, and it says oh. defense executive gives back locally. Yeah, and it, that's cool. And it starts it starts with a phenomenal quote that's very Boyd. Uh, it says, "Innovation requires discomfort. Mm. You have to become comfortable 
with feeling uncomfortable, said Quan Collins, the executive director for digital innovation at Axiant. So let's talk about that quote. Innovation requires discomfort. You have to become comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. And I think of the five that say that you just you just listed those those five paradigms, they probably would have a hard time becoming uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anytime you're learning something new, um, it is uncomfortable. Mm. You know, it's, you're scared. It's scary. It's scary to learn new things uh, because you feel vulnerable. You feel like, um, and especially the older we get, right. And you get, you know, you get all these accolades for being smart and being good at your job or whatever. And you, it feels good, right. All of that feels really good. You gain confidence from that. And then you start to realize how much you don't know. Right. And I study a lot on imposter syndrome, especially for, you know, women in, in positions, um, and as they want to progress in a, in an organization, um, you know, there's always that fear, like, can I, can I do this job? Right. Can I, do I know enough? Do I know the things? So that discomfort is magic because it, it is a good signal. It's a signal of the things that you don't know yet. It's a signal of the things that, uh, you need to, to learn. Right. And what, the tragic thing is, is that most people don't want that feeling, right? They're mm. like, oh, I want to stay away from that. So let's go back to the place where I'm comfortable and everybody's telling me how amazing I am. Um, I think I first realized that when I was working on my dissertation and I remember, you know, I, w- I walked into the doctoral program very cocky because, you know, work was already like they were promoting me. I was getting all these, you know, awards and stuff. And everyone around me was telling me how cool I was. So I walked into the doctoral program thinking, you know, I got this, right? You should just hand me the doctorate right now. And I remember mm-hmm. when I met my dissertation chair for the first time <laughs> and I gave her my pitch, you know, my elevator pitch on what I wanted to study. And she's like, uh, yeah, that's garbage. And I'm like, excuse me. I was like, <laughs> do you know who I am? Like, yeah. and she's like, yeah, you're nothing right now. And um, and I'm the gatekeeper to get you to where you want to go. So yeah, and I'm telling you that you don't know anything right now. And I've never mm. felt so dumb in my life. I was like, oh my goodness. And I took dumb or humbled. So I felt. All of it. I felt like, yeah. oh my God. Like, so it totally shook my world because I'm like, I came in thinking I was, you know, this hot shot, like, you know, rising star in my company. My company's paying for this doctorate thing. And, um, and this woman just told me that that didn't, none of that mattered there. Wow. Right. And, and it was interesting. Like the more I read, the more I studied, the more I thought about the thing that I wanted to study, the more I realized how right she was and that I did not know anything. Like all of my assumptions were challenged. All of, you know, you start setting up your research question and start coming up with your hypotheses. And I'm like, oh my God, I know, I really don't know anything. <laughs> and mm. I didn't. Um, so it was brilliant though. That was my turning point, I think, because I was like, wow, this is how, this is it. This is why I'm here, right? This had nothing to do with the degree anymore. It had to do with me realizing that I I needed to always be in this place where um, 
I was challenged. I wanted that that collaborative circle of people that were challenging everything that I thought because I otherwise I was going to die, right? And at that mm. point, it was like I think you know when I I start I say innovate or die or whatever. Um, I realized that that's where exactly where I needed to be all the time. And it was when, um, you know, there was a shift in my, my career path also where I was becoming much more comfortable with taking on positions, taking on projects where I didn't know what I was doing, hmm. but I was confident in the fact that I could learn and that I could surround myself with people that would help me. So, so it was a recognition that discomfort is not necessarily a bad thing it, it, to put you in that position was a reminder that in order to achieve the growth that you desired, it sounded like you needed to have that kind I of, needed uh, that because know. if I, if I didn't figure that out, I'm pretty sure I would have been doing the same thing for the next 30 years. And, um, I would not be where I'm at today. Um, I would not have, you know, been okay with, um, with being challenged. Um, mm. and I needed, I needed to be okay with that. Um, and it's interesting, like when I think back to my childhood and moving, you know, we were overseas, we were always around people from different cultures. I almost think I was bred for this too. I just didn't realize it, you know, like when you're, when you're, and you know, this as a Marine and traveling so much, um, and why you are drawn to other cultures is because it does challenge you. That just yeah. being in a different country, being around people that think differently, it's exciting because you are inherently challenged, right? You're tasting new food, you're smelling new things, you're hearing different languages. And yet there's a commonality there too, because we're all humans and we're all trying to do very similar things, raise our families and, you know, do our job and help our country. And, um, and so it's, it's cool to realize how we're connected and yet how we're also so different. And that's, that's exciting. Yeah. I think that those situations where you're essentially your orientation is disrupted and, and you encounter the, a mentor of mine says there's three D's that shift orientation. Number mm. one is drift. You know, mm -hmm. like our early nineties high school selves see the world. We, we see the world completely differently now than we did back then with oh, no yes. internet and no smartphones. Right. Yeah. So that's just the drift of, of time that changes our perspective. The other two D words for, um, that I love, I think they actually have to go hand in hand. I think they tie in with Boyd's creation and destruction or, or Chang and Chi moves. It's disruption on one hand and it's design on the other. And you said earlier to disrupt for the sake of disruption and only disruption gets you nowhere, but meeting it with meeting it with design mm -hmm. um, is how you do it. So when you, when you go to a new culture, as you're, as you're describing and those new smells hit you and, and, and you can't read the language and you can't understand the language and you're put in that situation and you're, you're challenging your, your correspondence with your world is shattered mm -hmm. and you're, you're designing a new one on your own mm -hmm. or in, in, in the, in the unfolding interactions with the environment around you. That's creating a new design that you can adapt, you know, and I you, love can, that. you can learn, mm -hmm. um, you, you can relate to this. So, um, 
the Marines, I think, are really good at this because they oh, take yeah. a high they take a high school kid, they put him on the yellow footprints in the middle of the night uh-huh. <laughs> of, a, of a bus with no windows, you know, uh-huh. either Paris Island or San Diego, and they they dis- absolutely disrupt your correspondence with yep. what you think the world is, but it's met with a very exacting design. Yep. So that in ninety days you have a you have, you know, a, you have a marine. My husband's a Marine, as you know, and uh, we talk about some of this sometimes. And it's so funny because he was trained that way. He's like, how come no one else understands this, right? Like, this is normal. This is, you know, status quo. And I'm like, it's not, though, right? It's not. Um, because most people want to be in their comfort zone because yeah. it's safe. It feels good. Everyone's praising them. And um, and it's biological, too. So I study a lot of uh, uh neuroscience as it relates Mm. to this, because biologically speaking, so there's this, the two hemispheres of your brain, right? Left, right brain, and your sympathetic nervous system, your parasympathetic nervous system. And then in, in management, we talk about system one versus system two thinking. So we are biologically trained by evolution. Like since we were, you know, fighting dinosaurs to respond to stress. So, you know, we've got the attack is coming and the cortisone, we raise, you know, we, we get ready to fight or f- what is it? Fight or flight, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a normal biological response. So that's system one thinking. System two thinking is when we're not under stress and we have time to just think about the big ideas, to think about open thinking, to introduce and, you know, let the environment allow us to uh, think about different things. So we want to spend more time in system two, because that's where we can create. That's where we can innovate. That's where we can meet new people, be in a foreign land and be okay with all of that. Um, the problem is now, so we don't have bears attacking us every day. Thank goodness. Um, we're not in a wartime situation all the time. Um, but Little things now are causing us to live only in system one thinking. Hmm. Social media is one of those things. Email, all anything that's task focused, right? We're so task focused. And even with our parenting styles, right? We keep our kids so busy and that's all we do. That's what we think is the right thing to do to be successful because that's what society is telling us, right? So we're getting all this feedback that this is, that's the way to go. The problem is when you look at the brain and what's happening, all of the blood is flowing to the part of the brain that's only a system one thinker. And all the, the, the parasympathetic nervous system that allows you to relax and just really absorb what's happening to you is virtually dead. Like when you, so there's a scholar, uh, Richard Boyatzis, uh, that I talk about on my podcast. Yes. And um, he did, so he did a lot of work. So he's at Case Western in the business school, but he did a lot of work with a neuroscientist. I forget her name right now, unfortunately. But they did brain scans of actually um, special operations forces. And this was fascinating. So when they did brain scans of people that were chronically stressed, so all system one, like the the hemisphere of the brain that was a parasympathetic nervous system was dead. There's nothing going on there. And the other side of the brain that was system or the part of the brain that was system two thinking was dead. System one lit up, right? All the colors there, all the blood's flowing there. For, 
for the spec ops folks, because you would think, right, intuitively, that these guys are under fire all the time, right? Mm. So they must be super stressed. They must be in system one all day long. But guess what? They are the most calm individuals on the planet. They are the most mindful of everybody. And this goes back to, to Boyd now, because... They can, and they are innovators. They are natural innovators because when they're in a firefight, they need to be always observing what's happening, right? It doesn't matter what the plan was. If things need to shift, they need to shift immediately. So why is that the case? Because they studied why that was the case. And what it all came back down to was something called instrumental intimacy or trust, so when you are in those kinds of situations, you train with your fellow Marine or Delta Force or Navy SEAL or whatever the spec ops is so much, right? That you trust that individual that's standing next to you, like you trust no one else in the planet more than anybody, right? You know that if anything happens, that person is going to react in the way that you know how they're going to react and you're fine. So you can walk into the most dangerous, the scariest situation and you're, you're like, we're good. I know. what. Yeah. And so it's fascinating. And guess what? So in every organization, a normal corporation or whatever, we never have that experience, right? Because we're never (laughs) going to be that close, but we can adapt and we can recognize What are those things that are going to create that culture where we're not so, you know, just go do your job kind of thing, right? And so when I think about like this quiet quitting, quiet firing, all the stuff that we're talking about, the reason all of that is happening where people don't care, right? That they don't care about the job. They just want to show up, pick up a paycheck and go. And if somebody else hires them, fine. The reason that's happening is because we don't, we're not paying attention to the human, Right back to what you were saying about the void and recognizing, you know, that, yeah, it's all about the human. Yeah. Um, so anyways. It's, fa- it's fascinating yeah. because one of the things that he talked about pulling from uh, the, the I guess, the, the post-Napoleonic Prussians was was mutual trust, mm-hmm. was, was Einheit, was what they called it, that if you don't have that, it's very hard to unify around uh, a narrative, uh, you know, a focus and direction together. Um, you know, to your point, I've, I've said this on, on, on podcasts before. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, I, I left the Marine Corps active duty in 2004 yet. So many that I served with and under and over, we still talk constantly and we still seek each other's counsel and advice because we, we trust each other. And we've been in those interesting situations. It is it is um, interesting that in maybe the business world, there aren't as many examples like that. Not that it's impossible, though, because this year will be the 14th year of uh, of assembling with uh, about eight, eight guys that I went through the great. We all went through the great financial crisis together on a on a sales so team. It's possible in, in the corporate world, but you have to recognize it and you have to be yeah. intentional. So WL Gore, uh, so they make Gore Tex, right? They have they have a beautiful culture, and uh, Gore though he knew he knew 
how to build a company and grow, but still maintain that culture. So what he would do every time they had a building, he would only make parking spaces for 150 people because he said, after that, we forget the person. Hmm. So at 150, I still know everybody's name. I know their wives or spouses. I know their children. I know birthdays. I know everything it's about the, that person. The Dunbar number, right? Yep. That's the yeah. And then after that, I don't know that anymore. So then we have to set up a new business, a new company so that they can maintain that culture going forward. And so that's intentional, right? It's recognizing that I need to know that human being and I need to lead that way. Yeah. Well, I was going to add too that, you know, we were, we were on a team with a very different leader, um, that it was kind of an isolated pod in a world of chaos that we bonded together, um, which, is not pervasive throughout a lot of organizations, right? They just don't, they just don't build that like the Marine Corps, or like mm -hmm. the SEALs or the Rangers or that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So um, I, I do like that, it, you know, that thing about say, you know, the, the Dunbar number, right. Or the, the you know, the 150, yep. it is important to know people and it is it important is. to know, um, you know, to be empathetic. You ever see Aaron Brockovich? I love that movie so much. Isn't it, isn't I've it great? It many times. Yeah. Uh, she was just here in Ohio with the with the train wreck, with <gasps> spilling the chemicals. <laughs> oh my god! But I my uh, my seventeen year old is really into film. Like mm. he loves studying film and scripts and and everything. So we That's watch cool. Aaron Brock. We're watching Aaron Brockovich together. So what's do you remember the scene where she figures it out of? She she sees something that she's got to pursue, yep. but she's not meeting the objective of nine to five in the office right, every day. Right. So they fire her. Yep. Well, I think, I think that that's an example of the opposite of what you're talking about. They didn't know her. They didn't know her situation. They didn't have empathy for what was going on. They didn't know her. She had an interesting family situation, but she also had a very interesting business situation mm -hmm. that they, they found out the hard way yep. <laughs> what she was onto that if they had taken those steps in the beginning to get to know her. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's back but, to the obstructionist, right? She wasn't, yeah. she, she wasn't doing the traditional thing, right? Which was showing up, which was respecting the boss and doing the things you were told. She was a disruptor. And Boy, disruptors yeah. are always met that way. It's a great example. Like I'm always trying to find non-military examples to talk about with, you know, with, with Boyd, um, mm -hmm. with, with Uda and that kind of thing with, with people ideas and things, you know, a lot of the Boyd concepts. And that's a really, that's a really good one that I think a lot of people can, uh, can relate to, mm -hmm. but, but it goes to what you're saying. Like if, you know, if he had taken the time to really get to know her and if there was that, ability to share feedback up and down without obstruction. Yeah. Um, it never would have been an issue that she wasn't there because they would have known that she's out hunting down um, what became a massively huge case, which a lot of people were affected by that. You know, there's yep. a lot more of a, of a uh, ripple effect, I guess, than, than just somebody not showing up to work at nine to five every so day. Did you, um, I read a recent quote about, um, empathy. I don't know if you saw that in my, in my LinkedIn post, but I wanted to pick it up or I wanted to share it with you again. Um, so the, um, author is Mohsin Hamid. He's a British Pakistani writer and, hmm. um, 
I mean, it was, it's amazing. So I'm trying to look it up. Give me one second. I, I do want to ask you about pee hacking. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Well, what was the quote? What was the, okay, so, uh, okay, give me a second. Sorry. It's I'm, I write too much. Um, hold on. It's coming. I know it's close. And anybody listening should follow you on social on uh, LinkedIn. Cause you do put up a lot of interesting stuff. Oh from, my God. Uh, I'm all over the place. I think I, yeah, you pull from a very interesting, I mean, you're, you're uh, not linear at all. You, you, you're very <laughs> multidisciplinary in your, uh, in your postings. It's awesome. That's like the best descriptor of me. I am not linear. That is for sure. Well, it, it's no surprise that you would be drawn to Boyd because when you, when you dig into Boyd, um, you really realized that he was into so many things and he pulled from so many, so many disciplines, so many industries. Um, All right. I'm going to just Google it because I can't find it. Um, Selma, Selma. Okay. Empathy is about finding echoes of another person in yourself. Hmm. Such a beautiful quote. Empathy is about finding echoes, echoes another, of another person in yourself. Yeah, I guess that would that would suggest relatability and, mm-hmm. and understanding what somebody's going through and and um, finding that connection. I think it's back to what we were talking about, like when you're in a foreign country. Like, yes, yeah. it feels very weird and different, and you can't get it. But when you are empathetic right about the situation you find that common ground like yeah. where are we similar well yeah and i also think that add to what you were saying when you went to your dissertation director mm-hmm. it, it, it does involve a word that is commonly we commonly use when we discuss boy is humility yes you, yes you gotta have humility yes to admit that you don't know everything, um, admit that you don't know um, everything about a person. I mean, there's things where patterns emerge with, say, an employee, and you know, like, say, go back to the Aaron Brockovich example. Like, a pattern emerges. Well, why wouldn't I ask first? Like, exactly. Like, yeah, rather than just fire her. Right. Find right. out. Find out what's mm-hmm. going on. Go with her wherever she's going. Just yeah. travel. See what she's doing. And I guarantee, right, because finally that lawyer that she was working for, right, once he saw what she was doing and recognized the skill set that she brought that he didn't have, um, he started to get it, right? He started to appreciate her. Um, but, yeah, there was more focus on how she was dressed, how she was talking, the fact that she wasn't, you know, there all the time. And um, reduction, like standard uh reduction, like reducing to numbers. And I went through that throughout my career. Um, You know, I remember when I was, um, I worked for a company that I I won't name, but um, it was a lot of, uh, you know, older white gentlemen. And uh, I was very young and I was brought in to lead the engineering team and change their process. So I was always in this, in this role where I was there to be the disruptor. 
And mm-hmm. I didn't get it then, you know, I didn't know about obstructionist or anything back then. I was just like, yeah, I can do that. Right. I know how to do that. And so I, you know, I laid it all out. I laid out the new process and what they wanted was more rigor around how they were evaluating their designs. And it wasn't that the engineers didn't know what they were doing. There was just not a lot of standard ways of doing it. Right. They were it was mm. kind of the, the wild west, like um, everybody just got their job done, which was fine when they were small. But then when they grew, they needed more standard process. So I'm like, I got this right. I know how to do that. So I went in and I started laying it all out. We set up these, you know, those routine checks and everything and meetings. And and I didn't know what they knew because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a 30 year a satellite designer or anything like that, but I did understand process. Right. And I knew how to do that. So, um, but they were so frustrated with me and they were just like, you know, who does she think she is? And you are, you know, in your twenties, like, what do you know about anything? And, um, it was fascinating. So, um, yeah, it was very, it was, it was challenging and I was very uncomfortable, uh, because I didn't have authority either, you know, cause I was still young. Um, even though the v- vice president of engineering was like, go do this thing. I'm like, okay, you don't understand. No one is listening to me. So mm-hmm. How do you want me to do this job exactly? Am I supposed to just start yelling at everybody? Because I don't think I can yell louder than some of the guys. So, um, anyways, it was, uh, it was definitely a learning process, another learning process in understanding how to manage and navigate because, what I realized, you know, and what I know for sure now is that this is, this is normal. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's, it wasn't about me, right. It wasn't personal. Uh, it was just the change is very hard and that we are hardwired to resist it. Um, and biologically sometimes it's not possible. And there is a cost to pushing the change when you don't do anything else to fix that resistance. Mm. And the, well, the benefit for you is growth, right? Yeah. You got the, the growth right. and experience. I did. And I grew do you find, <laughs> do you find that in those situations, I, I wonder what you think about this. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the leadership discussions and a lot of the coaching and, and teaching discussions um, are often deeply rooted and based on um, a, a very – exacting school of learning what not to do. Mm-hmm. I find that, you know, like I learned so much at certain companies of what never to do that it was an intro. It, it wound up being rather than a, a miserable experience. It turned into a valuable classroom. Yeah. Um. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how right you are. If no mm. one is working with you and if no one is listening to you, so I think that's that's the important bit to recognize and that, you know, everybody, no one wakes up or no one wakes up in the morning. This is another thing. Even those territorialists, they don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I'm going to go to battle with that person that's trying to disrupt my world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think everyone wants to try to do the thing that they believe is the right thing to do. Um So I think, you know, back to empathy, it's important to understand that and understand that, you know, everybody from their perspective believes in the thing that they're doing and that it's our role to, uh, to be humble, to have humility, 
to understand that first before you go in with guns blazing saying, you know, you're an idiot. Um, because as soon as you shut that person down, it's very hard to um, open that back up, right? It takes a lot of work to get back to a point where you're communicating again. So if we are going to move forward together, we have to, we have to figure that relationship out. Mm. And, um, and that's what I loved about what Greg has taught me with the obstructionists is that realizing I'm not, this is not a fight, right? I'm not Mm -hmm. here to fight everybody. I'm here to figure out how to, um, how to change, how to help people to change. And even with the work that, um, Richard Boyatzis has done with Case Western. This is a partnership, right? We have to partner with everybody and we have to bring everybody along and learn in the process because I don't know everything. I'm going to be the first one to tell you, I don't know a lot of things. Um, So I believe in a lot of things that I believe are the ways that we can go faster, Mm -hmm. but I can't do this by myself, right? There's, I need everybody to, I need the village. I need the army behind me. And um, so that requires, you know, that I need to learn first. The, uh, I guess that kind of approach allows you to harness complexities to your advantage rather than be defeated by them. Exactly. Yeah. You, 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 you don't lay out the welcome mat for entropy. Right. <laughs> seems like when we're not learning, we're, we're not, uh, working towards common goals. Um, one thing, I, one thing we keep going back and forth with with me anyway, developing is if, if I don't have self-awareness, if I don't have effective self-awareness, there's mm. no way I could have good situational awareness. Yep. That's so true. And you know, that's one thing we don't interview for either when we're hiring people. Mm. Um, you know, Google does a really amazing job. I don't know if you've ever interviewed with Google. Um, but it's we, we, very... we've interviewed somebody from Google on the, on the podcast that hasn't been released yet, but yeah, we've, we've talked to people from Google interview yeah. process because they care more about your ability to be part of the culture than they do about what you know how to do. Mm. I mean, they trust that with your certs and your job and what you've done that technically you're going to be able to do your job. But yeah. It's more important. Yeah. Yeah, that's like the that's the people ideas things, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we we assume that anybody that would send their resume, for the most part, would be basically qualified to be there. Yep. The differentiation comes around: are, are they able to subscribe? Yes. To i to ideas rather <laughs> than just generate prescriptions. I always talk about the difference between subscriptive and prescriptive. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. subscriptive is we aligned to core values. We align to uh, beliefs of the team that we're going to work together towards. We're going to be focused and directed towards. A lot of people don't want to do that because mm-hmm. they say, I'm objectively really good at this. I'm objectively the best at this, yep. but you put them in front of people or you put them on a team and, and it falls it's like apart. a hamster on it. Yeah. Yep. It falls apart. Entropy, mm-hmm. uh, entropy takes over. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your, so you've got Samaya Studios. And you have a great mm-hmm. podcast, uh, Intersections, mm-hmm. Mission mission to Innovate. You have a, uh, a teammate on that, like I do. Um, yeah, Prachi. So uh, yeah. Prachi and I work together at SAIC. 
She was uh-huh. on my team uh, when we were in analytics together. And it's funny, you know, your colleagues at work, back to the whole friend thing and, and getting to know people, we didn't really get a chance to know each other um, until after she left. So she left SAIC and um, and then we kept in touch because we really enjoyed working together. Mm-hmm. And so she, um, sorry, there's a little bit of background noise, but. That's um, okay. So she was um, really interested in figuring out how to sort of do things outside of work that would open up that part of the brain that was more creative. And so she was great at like she she had a whole thing where she was writing science fiction stories, Hmm. like short stories. And that was her way of like escaping from the day to day of work and thinking outside the box and all this stuff. And I was fascinated by all of that. And I, so we got to, you know, talking and every time we talked, we were like, we should do a podcast except no, you know, because this would be really cool to record what we were Hmm. saying, but we were both not experienced with that. And we were like, well, you know, who would listen, right? And how do we even do that? And where would we, where would we start? So whenever I moved to Huntsville, which was summer of 21, I, uh, I connected with RigVed at uh, I2C, the Invention to Innovation Center, which is like a co-working space um, in the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And I reached out to him, just cold emailed him. And I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm moving to Huntsville. I would love to be part of your organization somehow. I didn't even know what that could look like. Well, I went there, I took a tour. He has a podcast studio and I said, Hey, I have a girlfriend of mine and I really curious about podcasting. Can you help us? And he's like, Oh my goodness. Yes. So he, you know, he was all into signing me up as a mentor. Anyways, I was coming from Austin, Texas and, you know, I was a mentor for startups in Austin and he's like, Oh, so you be a mentor. And then this will be part of what you're doing as a mentor is doing this podcast. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Thank you. And he had all these students that were helping with the production. And so I didn't even need to worry about, you know, figuring all that part out. All we had to do was build the content. So Prashi and I immediately got to work and we started, you know, and we're both type A, you know, very meticulous with the planning. And we were very self-conscious of the fact that no one was going to listen to this podcast. So we were like, we were very aggressively building content because we wanted it to be good. And I think the thing that we, we, we talk about in our early uh, episodes is I think when you're, you know, when you're writing, when you're publishing, the threshold for quality content, right, is higher because you're like, wow, you know, all these experts in the field are going to, you know, evaluate it. And so then you don't write as much because you're like, it's stressful, right? You can't always meet that threshold. But with things like LinkedIn and podcasting, like things just like a conversation are okay, right? It does, everything mm-hmm. doesn't have to be scholarly every time you you post something or, or share something on a podcast. So we liked that because it allowed us to sort of just document the things that we were thinking about and not feel like it had to meet some, um, you know, very high threshold mm-hmm. for good quality literature, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um So anyways, we came up with all this content and what we realized was we had enough for like the first at least five or six episodes. So we started breaking it down and and figuring out our plan. And uh, yeah, we recorded our first one and we both work full time in very demanding jobs. And so we thought, well, 
I don't know if this thing is going to last, right? Because, you know, we're going to get busy and this is going to be the last thing on our list. But what ended up happening is we loved it so much that we were like, oh my God, we have to keep this going. Whatever it takes, right? We were going to, we were going to get it done. So that, that was the birth of, um, the Intersections podcast, Mission to Innovate. And Mission to Innovate, um, so we both we both named it. So she came up with Intersections because her vision of what we were doing was when you meet a friend in a cafe and you have this amazing conversation, right? Just like what we were talking about with the collaborative circles. And ideas start sparking and you get that feeling, the butterflies in your stomach because it's just, it's you've met somebody that... Um, is a kindred spirit, right? And that you, you have that amazing conversation. So we wanted that podcast to be sort of a way to have that conversation always. And then mission to innovate. Um, did you ever watch, what was it called? Nightly news, I think on HBO with, um, I think it was nightly news. It was about the broadcast, the nightly broadcast and Jeff Daniels. Oh, Jeff Daniels. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that show so much. So he, in the beginning, you know, talks about, um, Don Quixote and, um, the mission to civilize. Right. And his whole thing was he was going to use the nightly news, the hour that he had to help to make better informed citizens when they're going to the polls. And that was his one objective. And so my thought with our intersections was that my mission was to help with the understanding of innovation. And what Mm. does it take? Because we throw that word around so much, right? Everybody says, oh, we want innovation. We want transformation. We want all these things. But we think it's a tool. We think it's a technology. We think it's a, you know, we got to go get a Tesla and now we're innovative. No, it has more to do with the human being. And so mm. um, that's been sort of our reasons for having the podcast. Well, and you say, you know, we, we explore intersections between disciplines, ideas, technologies. So you're pulling from multiple places, um, multidimensional thinking. I love the, the definition of Samaya uh, means a system of teaching and the conduct required of a practitioner. So, so there's a good story behind that, too. So yeah. Um, when I started studying mindfulness as a sort of a foundation for um, um, innovation, right? And when we're mm-hmm. thinking about the human being behind the innovation, um, I really got into yoga. And mm. uh, and because when you're when you're, I mean, it's a very ancient right art form, and from Buddha's time, right? Mindfulness. This is all part of that teaching of why, um, you know, you need to do no harm, do no harm to self, do no harm to other people. Um, you know, be truthful, be clean in your thinking. All of that is around the same ideas that we've been thinking about right now with mindfulness and that system to thinking. So that linkage of, of yoga and, um, and this idea of, of being an innovator and creating the mindset for continuous learning they're very tightly coupled. And so I'm always, you know, like connecting and the patterns are very interesting to me. So I, I was never a real practitioner of yoga. I mean, I was, you know, I'd go to the group classes or whatever in the gym and, and I didn't get it. Like, you know, everybody kept talking about the, the mind shifting and I'm like, I don't get it. 
And it wasn't until I met my now current yoga instructor and also connected with um, Pima Chodron. So Pima Chodron is a, a monk in Nova Scotia. And I, you know, I, my bucket list item is to, is to just go hang out with her forever in Nova Scotia sometime, someday. But um, her writing really resonated with me. And so she has three principles, which are all foundational with what the Buddha taught. But um, one is the do no harm. Right. Mm. And that's really powerful when you think about it, because we harm and all the things that we were talking about in terms of um, not having that civilized discourse, all of that is harmful. Right. When we when we attack somebody's idea, when we're not empathetic, when we're um, and we do that to ourselves. Right. And all of that reaction is actually it's connecting back to the things in ourselves that we don't like. And um, so it's the do no harm lesson is, is powerful. She also talks about um, uh, using poison as medicine. So when every, when things, bad things happen or, you know, you got a bad day at work or whatever, she's like all of that discomfort back to the discomfort discussion are ways that you can learn. So what mm-hmm. is that teaching you about yourself? What is that teaching you about whatever is going on? So using poison as medicine. And then the third one is everything is on the path. There is nothing that you interact with in your day that is not supposed to happen. I wanted to share because uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, of this slide. So it's, it's literally you're describing it to a T. Um, can you see this? It's a little small, but I, yeah, I can read. Is it? Is it? Uh, it didn't blow up. No, it's oh, good. Man. It's good. I can see it. So, so this is from Chet Richards' webpage, uh, slightly east of New. Okay. And Chet Richards was one of the acolytes of John Boyd that collaborated with him and uh, did the math on destruction and creation, which uh, you can see that was the beginning input. And this sort of tracks the origin of Uda. Um, and in Boyd's own evolution of thinking about Uda over 20 years, uh, leading right up to his death in 1997. But everything that you've been saying, notice that last green bit, yep. Eastern philosophy, Taoism, mm-hmm. Zen, samurai adaptations, uh, the Toyota production system, Taichi Ono. Um, it's interesting that in the last years of his life, formulating these things, Boyd was really studying uh, Eastern philosophy in depth. And it's what's interesting so about fundamental, it is so fundamental to uh, all the, the ways that you need to be a system two thinker and to allow that part of your brain to open up. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's biological, biologically impossible <laughs> to do the thinking that Boyd was, was, was prescribing without understanding that philosophy. And it's nothing to do with religion either. I mean, religion, it's, you know, people sometimes reject that philosophy because they think it's going against Christianity or whatever, but it has, it's very, it's, they're mutually, they're symbiotic. Yeah. It's a way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I always point out I'm I'm a big, I don't know if you can see on the shelf up here, I have every Jack, a lot of Jack Kerouac books. And Jack Kerouac wrote a lot. He popularized uh, the study of Zen Zen, and and a a lot of Eastern thinking. Mm -hmm. 
And at the same time, he was also a very devout Catholic. Yes. So it's possible to be both. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the beauty of intelligence, right? Is there's the, the possibility of having two even divergent thoughts in your brain at the same time and still being able to function. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, uh, and I think that that's really what Boyd is telling us to do ultimately. Yeah. Is you have to, you have to take in as much as you can because, um, we, we've used this quote on the podcast a lot, but it comes from the big short. It's either Mark Twain or Will Rogers. It's not what you know. Mm. I'm sorry. It's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you're absolutely sure of that, that turns out not to Every be true. Every single time. Every yeah. single time. And if you're not exposing your, uh, you know, you're not open to ideas. I mean, that's, that's where I think the entropy sets in with yes. one's orientation where you, you become stagnant. You um, you're, you're static. You're no longer dynamic. And, and mm -hmm. the world is living proof that um, you need to go out because guess what? There's how many billions of people that don't see it your way. <laughs> you oh, know? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, there's a, there's a guy, he's our age, uh, his name's Peter Santanello. It's one, another one of my favorite YouTube channels. You have to check this out. Okay. This guy, he has an Italian passport. So he's able to go places that, you know, we might not be able to go, but he, he's got like 10 videos of Iran, oh. 10 videos of Pakistan and wow. India and all from the ground level. And all he does is he takes cameras with him, like a GoPro and he walks around by himself and Whatever happens, happens. It's very, it's very flow. You know, he just That's lets it cool. flow. Yeah. And he's, I, I remember looking at it the first time and he had a, I don't know, 20,000 subscribers and now he's over a million, wow. but That's he's cool. going, he's going in the places that we would never think to go. So he goes into Amish communities. He does like 10 videos of, of, of going with Amish communities in Ohio, or he goes into, um, Compton in California. Oh, wow. or he goes into East LA. Mm -hmm. um, he goes into Hasidic Jewish communities in New York and mm -hmm. he's getting their story from them. So what's interesting is that it breaks the, it, it really disrupts your viewpoint of what you may have thought or assumed. And, and at the same time, you're looking like, boy, I really want to go to the Hunza mm -hmm. Valley in Pakistan because <laughs> it looks awesome. You know, the people awesome. look super friendly. The food mm -hmm. looks awesome yeah. and the mountains are beautiful. And I never would have known about it if I hadn't seen, you know, this guy's disrupting the way that we, the way that we think. And, you know, we were talking about it earlier, how things like social media and whatever, it's, it's overhauling our, our, our ability to function. And yeah, as Gen Xers, we're kind of unique because we've had our hands in both worlds, right? I mean, yeah. you and I know how to use a rotary phone. Right. Our children oh, have yeah. no idea. No. You know? In fact, that's like a historical item. Like, oh, look at that. Isn't it crazy? <laughs> like, you know, but, but we we can we can see how apparently we're we're less susceptible. Like those of us that have that have lived in both worlds, we're less susceptible to sort of the um the I don't know the the overriding. We've had a couple yeah. of guests on that have talked neuroscientists that have talked about that. Um, but what I find in the value of something like Peter Santanello is creating is a, a disruptive view of some say Iran, for example. You know, if you take the the if you pull the average American, uh, their their view of Iran is what they hear Ayatollah. in the news. Yes, right. The Ayatollah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's one of my earliest memories of 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 thinking so you know, the way he, yeah, the way he looked and, and how scary they were. And, um, 
you know, growing up an army brat, we had a lot of Iranian kids that we grew up with that were, you know, refugees yeah. from Iran. So we had one view, but then you see this guy again, he goes over there like two or three years ago and he spends two weeks in Iran and you're like, you're kidding me. Like, mm-hmm. that's amazing. Like, mm-hmm. I want to go there. It really mm-hmm. looks like a cool, a cool spot. But. I mean, it was, it was the Europe of the Middle East back in the day. I think, I think the thing is, is like, there's a, there's a demand for disruption like that, that it's met with, we go back to, we're talking about disruption design. He's, mm-hmm. he's disrupting your view yeah. of what you think about X mm-hmm. and he's with design. He's showing, you know, the human interaction. And one of the things that he says, and then you, you would find this interesting because you, you grew up in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. He, he lived in, uh, he went to Saudi Arabia for a couple of weeks. And at, at the very beginning, he says, this is about Saudi people, not, not Saudi politics. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing like you would have heard on the news. And it's just like this I mean, they're fascinating, beautiful, beautiful people They're You know, it's a beautiful country. It's, um, you know, and like, I think, it boils down to like everything else that they're, they're just people and they're mm-hmm. doing their thing. They believe what they believe. And, um, you know, when you're not trying to compare it to something that, you know, and, and believe, then you can appreciate the beauty in what they're doing. Um, were there some archaic things that they did? Sure. Um, you know, but, um, because that's where empathy and understanding exactly. come in, right? We just exactly. have to understand that yeah. cultures are different and it's and not going to be. They're trying to change. And how how amazing is that to watch, right? So now women yeah. can drive. Now women can vote. Um, so that kind of transformation in a culture that was so anchored, right, in uh, in the ways that they were doing things is that's pretty amazing, right? And that's, that's mm. going to be a place to watch because if they can change like that, um, that's pretty amazing. I mean, from an innovation standpoint, it does seem like there's a lot of interesting things going on there. Yeah. I mean, in Dubai, right. Especially like that. Um, and they have sort of the benefit of everything because they're a little bit more Western. They're sort of like the perfect blend of Western and Eastern and everything and, mm. uh, and lots of money. So there's no boundary for them there. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, um, we should close with directing everyone to your podcast is on Spotify. Yes. So we're going to try to get onto more platforms, but right now it is Spotify. Um, and it's, if you go or if you search for intersections mission to in- innovate, uh, you will find us there. And we have, I think like 16 episodes now, our latest was on chat GPT. So we're Ooh. talking about um, uh, generative AI and the good, the bad and the ugly. So I can fo- I'm I'm following. I've got my notification bell. So the last one was with Jeff Jeff Evernum. Yes, correct. Yep. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and we can talk offline about podcast platforms and stuff. For sure. Um, and then of course, people should that are on LinkedIn should follow you on uh, LinkedIn because your your posts and the things that you share are great. Uh, Thank you. The things that you echo about Boyd. Um, well, as we close, anything for us? Any anything you want to know about? Uh, you haven't had a Boyd episode on your on your I podcast to, yet. Yes, I so. need to have you on my on my podcast so we can talk about Boyd and innovation because there is. I mean, he was an innovator, so I'm. I look forward to scheduling that one. Just say when. So good. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, Kwan. We really yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. All right, I'm gonna. St- 
That's all for this episode of No Way Out. We thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the conversation. Make sure you check out the show notes for links to people, ideas, and things discussed in each episode. As always, we want to thank our guests as they are hand-selected to improve your orientation. You can thank our guests by leaving a comment or sharing this episode with a friend. Just a friendly reminder, your competition may be a No Way Out subscriber. Don't let them disrupt your OODA loop. Subscribe today. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode of No Way Out. What am I getting at? The underlying message is very simple then. There is no way out unless we can eliminate the features just cited. Well, problem though, we don't know how to do this. So we have max entropy of max life. Disorder, which is that, it's called that. Fail. Fail. We want to get a matchup between our actions and our situations so we deal with it. We have a mismatch we can't cope, right? If you're in an equilibrium condition, you're dead. In other words, you want to have a wide variety of sources you've got the information to find out those things that hold together and those things don't hold together. The ambiguity helps to make adjustments to adapt, to adjust to the world. You can look at things from several points of view. Nothing more than a many-sided implicit cross-referencing process of projection, empathy, correlation, and rejection.